Welcome back to another edition of Classic Coverage, the podcast that looks at classic movies back when they were just screenplays. My name is Max Davis, and I'm your host. I'm a writer. I'm an editor. I'm a producer. I would be a director if anybody on my sketch team ever decided to actually come together on the weekends to shoot a short film. Uh, But more relevantly, I'm a development coordinator or unpaid script reader at a major studio. And even more relevantly than that, I got catfished. Yes, as you might recall from last episode, I thought we had finally got our sponsor. Uh, Coverage.script, the website, had uh, decided to sponsor the show. And I was so excited about getting that 25 bucks in my Venmo account that I didn't even check to see what the website was. I assumed it was just going to be a, a screenplay help site, you know, maybe where you could uh, get advice on your log line or s- story structure. And no, it wasn't. It was actually, it was a website that gave notes on this very podcast, talking about how it had a limited appeal and limited scope, and it was too insular and dry, and that nobody really gave a damn. Uh, They also thought that the sound quality in the Pulp Fiction episode was a little bit below average. And in one episode, I said nasal-gaving instead of navel-gazing. So yeah, uh, congrats, whoever was behind this. You paid me to make an ass out of myself. And you know what? I do that for free as it is on this show. So, uh, ha? I will admit that the website was very professionally made, and it looked as though they used Squarespace to uh, compile it. So I guess in a way, Squarespace is our new sponsor? Squarespace, for when you want to elaborately catfish someone. That's a free slogan, Squarespace. That's a freebie. And if I had to assume who would do this, you know, in my myriad of people on my enemies list, one name jumps forward. My intern, Caleb. Yep, that sneaky, sly, millennial son of a gun with his student dead in his Vespa. Yeah, and the worst thing about it is that everybody around here seems to like him. They say that he takes a genuine interest in the development process, and he asks good questions, and he makes eye contact and says hello to people every morning. She's clearly faking. Maybe there's an idea there for a screenplay. What if there's a young intern who weasels his way into a group of creative professionals with a sob story, and everybody starts to like and trust him, and then he backstabs everyone? That could be that, that could be a good spec idea, something that gets me on the blacklist and gets me out of this. <laughs> Sorry, uh, kind of dusty in here, sandwiched between the coffee machine, the Keurig, and the copier. Hmm. Okay, Caleb. Your little act of subterfuge might have gotten me last week, but now it's going to propel me to a new era of screenwriting stardom. Yeah, as, as stated before, if I sound a little bit nasally this week, it's because the the intern room, it is poorly ventilated. And a lot of times I feel alone in here in a dusty room, kind of like, like that night from The Last Crusade, you know, just waiting for somebody to come here and ask the right question. And how did that guy know how to speak English if he'd been locked away for all those years? Anyway, I'm I'm... I'm focusing on the wrong bit of this podcast. So since I work at a major studio, I have access to the vault of all of the coverage ever written on any script submitted to this studio in the past. So hop in the golf cart, take a jaunt over to the vault, and since my reality is crumbling today, I decided to focus on a sci-fi script from the 90s that focused on a similar issue. So this week, we're going to see what the original studio notes were for the 1990s sci-fi picture, The Matrix. Script title, The Matrix, genre, science fiction, writers, the Wachowskis, draft date, July 7th, 1996, comments, 
I didn't get it and the script made me feel stupid. Recommendation. Pass. But then stapled to that coverage was a second write-up on the script by another reader. So let's see the second reader's notes. Script title, The Matrix. Genre, science fiction. Screenwriters, The Wachowskis. Draft date, July 7th, 1996. Comments. This script is brutally similar to Grant Morrison's graphic novel, The Invisibles. The studio can't possibly consider the script lest we launch a huge plagiarism lawsuit. Recommendation, pass. And then paperclip to the back of that was a third bit of coverage from yet another reader. So let's see what they thought about this script. Script title, The Matrix. Writers, The Wachowskis. Genre, science fiction. Draft date, July 7, 1996. Logline. A hacker learns that reality is just a computer simulation, and he teams up with a group of freedom fighters to liberate humanity from their robot overlords. Comments. The Matrix features an intriguing premise, prompting us to doubt everything we know about reality. The first 45 pages are surprising and full of twists, while still touching on many archetypal stories. A chosen one, facing off against a totalitarian society. Man versus technology. Free will versus destiny. Ultimately, however, the script's second half turns into a conventional shoot-'em-up laden with on-the-nose Christ imagery that doesn't make the generic action movie any more profound. The first act of The Matrix is an excellent exercise in how to build a mystery. Flipping through the first 40 pages, I had no idea where the story was headed. When Neo gets abducted at work, it first feels like a paranoid political thriller. Possibly his job as a hacker is going to get him into trouble. Yet then we learn that the rules of physics don't necessarily apply. The chase scene featuring the robotic parasite truly heightened the imagery. Although Neo was confusingly referred to as Thomas Anderson as a character until page 27 when they changed the character name to Neo in the script. These solid cryptic elements all lead up to the impressive sequence where Neo takes the red pill and learns about the true nature of reality. The reveal of what the Matrix is works well although it is somewhat derivative of William Gibson's novel Neuromancer, and the idea of a self-aware AI that wants to take over the world calls to mind Ghost in the Shell. And in the interest of full disclosure, this reader has considered writing a similar sci-fi idea where life is just a virtual reality. Not necessarily the most original idea. The middle third of the script is essentially an extended training montage for Neo, learning how to use his newfound martial arts prowess, learning how to enter the Matrix via phone line, and learning the rules of how the agents can take over other people's bodies. Most of Neo's training is accomplished due to large exposition dumps, which in turn are facilitated by Morpheus's monologuing. On page 37, there's an info dump that lasts for seven whole pages, which begins with Morpheus speaking in front of a white background, not necessarily the most visually stunning setting. Although then, confusingly, it says, cut to the harvest fields, where they explain the robotic plan to harness humans' bioelectricity. I had to reread these sections a few times to grasp all of the concepts being thrown at me by the screenwriters, and trust me, there are a lot of ideas in this script. The writers do do a good job of using these sequences to set up the rules. Particularly notable is that they make it clear that there are physical stakes when the characters die in the Matrix. Body cannot live without the mind, page 56. There is a mention of Zion, the last remaining human settlement, but we never see it. 
Come on, writers, at least give us a peek at the larger world if you're trying to build one. A look at the invention of the Matrix, maybe even the programs behind its creation, is full of dramatic potential. On page 105, Neo successfully rescues Morpheus, which leans heavily on the student saving the master trope, and the script feels as though it could end there, but we get another conflict where Smith kidnaps, terrorizes, and murders Neo. Neo dies, then makes a messianic resurrection a mere two pages, underlined two pages later, thanks to the curious power of love. We are in a computer simulation dominated by sentient robots, but this is the most egregious instance where I simply could not suspend disbelief. The One is a limitless being, able to alter reality. Is this too vague and broad of an ability? Should we put some restraints on what the One can and cannot do? Neo flies off into the sky at the end, which might be heightening a bit too much. The hopes for a franchise can be cut short when you simply introduce a hero who is all-powerful. The character of Neo certainly has a large plot-based journey throughout the movie, learning about the true nature of reality as he moves from a hacker into an unrestrained version of the One. His emotional journey, however, not so much growth. He doesn't have much emotional range, remaining in a perpetual state of awe until the final five pages. It would take an amazing actor to add some sort of range and depth to the character of Neo. Much like the Faceless Agents, the supporting cast is interchangeable. You can't tell Tank apart from Dozer, apart from Mouse, apart from Apoc. Despite being indicative of the evil Matrix, Agent Smith doesn't do much until page 66 when he recruits the treasonous cipher. On page 100, we learn that Smith also wants to escape the Matrix and to forge his own identity. This is a good turn, providing depth to your antagonist, but it comes far too late in the script for us to care. Maybe the story would have been more engaging if a self-aware Smith were the villain from page 1. The script attempts to get deep at times, particularly in dialogue, see the scene when Neo visits the Oracle, but a lot of this dialogue reeks of faux philosophy that is better suited for a freshman seminar on Kant and Hegel and Heidegger. The writers also offer many visual descriptions of camera moves, blocking, slow and fast motion, and how they would possibly direct this property. Many of these come off as distracting as you are attempting to read the script. But I still can't imagine how some of these fight scenes would work. The kung fu battle between Morpheus and Neo sounds like your garden variety battle, except it's inside a computer simulation here and the script lets us know that they move a lot faster than normal. The hand-to-hand -hand combat in Act 3 between Smith and Neo reads fairly pedestrian. There are some interesting ideas in these fight scenes, but this reader is not sure how any of them would really be visualized on the big screen. What would it look like when Neo jumps from a building only for the cement to spring him back in the air like a trampoline on page 52? Or on page 107, when a helicopter crash leads to an office building rippling like water in waves. How do you execute this without a large budget? The script also periodically refers to bullet time as though I should know what the hell that means. In the end, The Matrix tries to be a John Woo action movie, but with the philosophical depth of a Deepak Chopra seminar. This is a difficult balancing act, and I will admit the writers come close to towing that line. The idea of the computer simulation has potential, but other than that, this is a somewhat generic action movie. And based solely on this script, I'm not sure if we can dive in. It is difficult to launch a new intellectual property, particularly one that relies so heavily on execution and vision, and is not based on an existing comic book. Also, the script feels very similar to Alex Preuss's movie Dark City. Or perhaps those similarities are just deja vu. You know. 
A Glitch in the Matrix. Recommendation. Pass. Side note. Would it be possible to acquire the film rights to Plato's Allegory of the Cave? It would probably cover the same philosophical ground as the script, but it would be much cheaper, and it is based on an existing piece of intellectual property. So the lesson here is that coming up with an original idea is a lot harder than you think, which is why I'm a little bit, I'm kind of happy actually that I inadvertently stumbled into this idea of an intern who talks his way into a group of creative professionals. Yeah, it's, it's going to be a good story, you know, uh, like slowly they all, uh, they all start to trust him and he gains their respect and he rises slowly from an assistant and then possibly even getting a starring role and then stabbing everybody in the back to... That's just the plot of All About Eve, isn't it? Or the Betty Davis movie that won Best Picture back in the 50s. I, uh... Huh, I just came up with All About Eve. You know what, hell, let's, let's, let's reboot that franchise. You know, why not? They've rebooted Spider-Man twice. Why not uh, inject some new life into the All About Eve cinematic universe? And uh, that's what we'll do. We will swap the genders, okay? So instead of Eve, it'll be a man. It'll be All About Steve, which was the name of a terrible Sandra Bullock movie. Damn it! <laughs> well, I think that's all the time we have for this episode this week. I'm going to go take a very angry golf cart ride around the studio, crank that bad boy all the way up to 13 miles per hour, and cheat death, maybe. As always, I'd like to thank Noah Goldberg for providing the theme music for this show. It always ties the show together, even when everything else is falling apart. My name is Max Davison. I've been your host, reminding you, as always, that even the classics use another passive notes. Notes.